2: Welcome everybody to another day of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to have you with us if you're listening in real time for the Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. Of course, you all know by now we're on five days a week, Monday through Friday at 9 and at 2 o'clock every day. If for some reason you can't catch us at 9... You'll hear the show at 2 or vice versa. And we're thrilled with the response we're getting from all of you about the fact that we're now on five days a week. Uh, We've got a great panel lined up to talk about some state news, local news, and some uh, national politics, of course. Um, I want to start, though, by welcoming our new intern. She was here with us last week, and I didn't get a chance to welcome her on the air, but Mariana Bacayayo is with us From Mercer University, welcome, Mariana. We're thrilled to have you here as part of the Political Rewind team. And I know that Tom and Sam have all sorts of work that they're going to uh, get you doing in the weeks ahead. All right, let's talk with the panel. Uh, Tamara Hellerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us as she is on most Tuesdays. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about a terrific Sunday piece you published you filed on um, maternal mortality in the state. It's an issue we've talked about, but you really drill down and get into the granular detail of how this is affecting real people out there.
1: yeah, I drove to an OBGYn clinic in Southeast Georgia in Jessup and hung out with an OBGYN there as he was kind of scrambling to take care of a lot of his of a lot of his patients, many of whom are, are quite poor and and at risk of kind of becoming a statistic. So I, I interviewed a lot of the patients to kind of illustrate you know, how the rubber is hitting the road in Georgia. Yeah, we're
2: going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. We have another journalist on the panel today, the editorial director of Savannah News, Adam Van Brimmer, is with us from the uh, from the newspaper down in Savannah. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for joining us.
3: Good morning, Bill. Good to be here.
2: Um, we have with us in the studio State Senator Jen Jordan, uh, Democratic Senator. We're going to talk a little bit about some of your legislation today. Uh, today, Jen. Thanks for being here. How's the session going for you so far?
0: It's crazy so far, so we'll <laughs> see. I'm, I'm not sure when it's going to end.
2: Yeah, I don't think anybody is, as a matter of fact. We'll, we'll talk a bit about that. And back here for the first time in quite a while, Ted Terry, mayor of Clarkston. Uh, you all probably know that Ted uh, threw his hat in the ring for Senate race number one, ran as a Democrat in that race, decided that wasn't the right contest for him. You're now running for DeKalb County Commission. That's right. I am in the Super Six District. And and let's say something. I didn't know this. You're two weeks away from ending your time as mayor of Clarkston. That's right. Georgia law requires that if you
4: qualify for another office, yeah. you have to resign your current office, of course, unless you're secretary of
2: state. I, I think that your experience in Clarkston has been fascinating to watch. Uh, Because clearly, Clarkston is ground zero for the refugee community, not just in Georgia, but certainly in the southeast and in many ways, representative of the refugee community in the United States at large. Absolutely. Yeah. Clarkston is the Ellis
4: Island of the south. And, uh, you know, look, trust me, um, over the years, other mayors have said, we love that Clarkston's so diverse. Um, It's so great what you're doing over there. And I've said, oh, would you like to receive some refugees as well? And usually it's been, no, no, y'all are good, y'all yeah. just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but yeah, we are the landing pit place for new Americans, as we call them. Um, and when they become citizens, they register to vote, and we have, even have two... Former refugees on our
2: city council now. Yeah, uh, well, you know that's a good place to start tomorrow because although the the, the legislation now that has now been introduced in the in the legislature does not address, it's not about refugees. It's about so-called dreamers, the young uh, immigrants who uh, do not have legal status here, but who have been granted uh, status. Um, it's, this, it's It's a similar situation. You're talking about how do you take advantage of people who have come into this country regardless of their status and make sure that they are um, being put to productive have, – have productive things to do. So it's interesting that we have now three bills in the legislature, uh, and one of them is a Democratic bill, but two of them are by Republicans. Are, are we starting to see some sort of understanding on the Republican side of the aisle that – Uh, dreamers are important to the Academy here?
1: I mean, on Capitol Hill, you've seen that to a certain extent for years. That's kind of the one issue where Democrats and a lot of people in the Republican Party do agree. I think the problem is that it's been used as a bargaining chip for so long. Everybody knows that that's kind of the sympathetic cause when it comes to immigration. And so people often let's pair this with with a more difficult change that's going to have to be made. So it's it's interesting to see that that there's these Republican co-sponsors of these bills in the legislature. And it's an acknowledgement that. In Georgia, you know, you're going to need more people who are educated in the workforce, uh, people with college degrees, especially in this era of automation. So it's, you know, recognizing that.
2: Jen, I should be more specific about what these bills do. These are bills which would allow uh, DREAMers to pay in-state tuition Uh, at universities. There are stipulations, there are restrictions, but the Board of Regents had established a policy saying that a dreamer must pay out-of-state tuition, and now you've got two Republicans and a Democrat saying, no, 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 it's time to give them the opportunity to go to school with in-state fees.
0: Yeah. But I think it's it's also about kind of the realities of the changing demographics of the state. If you actually look at the, the Republicans who um, introduced the measures, um, the first one was introduced by David Clark from Buford, which is Gwinnett County, which is probably kind of one of the most diverse changing places in the state in terms of demographically. Um, and so a lot of dreamers live in that area. And so for him, it's important But then right after that, you had another bill um, filed by Casey Carpenter, who represents Dalton, which is also an incredibly diverse area um, with lots of dreamers. And so you said, well, why are there two separate ones? Well, you will remember that um, David Clark was one of the group of Republicans that actually challenged Speaker Ralston. So if... Representative Carpenter really thinks this is a good bill and something that needs to get over the line. He's going to file a copycat, exclude Representative Clark, and push it his
2: way. Yeah, he figures that that uh, Representative Clark isn't going to get a whole lot of attention from <laughs> Speaker Ralston. But but Ted, it is interesting again that you have Republicans who say we need to do something to make sure these dreamers are educated in in, in a in a way that uh, will allow them to become. Uh, uh, really mm-hmm. good citizens in our community and, and employable here. Yeah, absolutely. And I applaud those Republicans who are recognizing
4: the value of our dreamers and, you know, the role they play in our in our society and community. Uh, at the same time, you have Republicans in other parts of the state that are introducing anti-sanctuary city bills, and they're trying to go far to the right. And this is really troubling, particularly for communities like Clarkston, DeKalb, Fulton, Cobb and Gwinnett, where these bills are saying that local law enforcement have to play the role of immigration uh, officers. And we are already strapped. Um, A lot of uh, police departments are having trouble filling vacant police positions Mm -hmm. just to do the basic patrolling. And now they're wanting to add another layer of responsibility to our officers. And uh, this is troubling because it's just bad policy. But for them, I think they think it's good politics to get out the anti-immigrant base in 2020, which they need in order to win Georgia.
0: But I think it shows the tension, right, in terms of within the Republican Party Um, and also with respect to what Ted was talking about. I mean, these issues of using local police forces or local sheriff's offices to basically enforce federal immigration law, it's coming up in almost every sheriff's race within kind of the metro area, the 13-county metro area, and is incredibly significant, Um, for folks in terms of who they're going to vote for and who they're not.
2: Yeah. Um, Adam, let me turn to you on this. And I'm going to ask you a question that I'm like the lawyer who shouldn't ask a question uh, he doesn't know the answer to. But talk to me about immigration issues like uh, sanctuary cities, um, uh, dreamers in Savannah. How does that affect your area?
3: Savannah, it's not been a hot topic. We've got a lot of other things on our plate (laughs) down here right now with – with the new city council and a lot of eco- economic development issues and a lot of other things, but you know I think it's interesting about the other piece of this whole in-state tuition thing is is enrollment in our state universities because here in Savannah at Savannah State enrollment is off something like 25, 30 percent over the last couple of years. Georgia Southern is down. If these go through and you have dreamers that can get in-state tuition, does that help enrollment figures at some of the other universities that could really use it and then are seeing a drop? As quite frankly, as the, the number of college-age um, young people start to fall yeah. off, and I did notice that this said that Georgia and Georgia Tech are still not going to accept, at least in the initial versions of these, Georgia and Georgia Tech are still not going to accept those students, which has been kind of a an odd part of it the last couple of years. Well, you well. know,
2: I think Adam, though, um, tomorrow Adam adds an, a benefit that could be very good for schools like Savannah State. He he's correct. At least one of the measures. Uh, says that you can't get in-state tuition for any university that's already at 98 percent enrollment, I think, is about the figure, something like that. Uh, So it probably would, Tamar, divert uh, students who who would end up at schools that are uh, uh, underutilized right now.
1: Yeah, and going to, to state universities outside of metro Atlanta, so kind of bringing the benefits down there. And I wanted to piggyback off something Senator Jordan was saying about um, you know, the legislator from Dalton and, and kind of the the reasons for doing that. It makes sense if, if you're in Gwinnett in a majority-minority community. Dalton is interesting because as the, the former carpet capital of Georgia. I guess you could still argue it is, but a lot of plants and mills that are starting to close um, in the era of rising automation. You need to train your workers into doing something else, and this is kind of a, a great way to help train the next generation. So it, it does make political sense uh, to a certain extent. I'm curious to to see how the governor responds to it because this is a man who, who ran last year and uh, especially during the Republican primary with this famous ad with his pickup truck he talking pickup about truck. rounding up illegal immigrants. Yeah. So I'll, I'll be curious to see.
2: Um, what's in also interesting about this, that's absolutely true. And Jen, I'm assuming the governor's office is remaining mum on this subject for the time being. There's no reason for them to weigh in at this point, Right.
0: You're right. I mean, it's one of those things where um, and Tamar kind of hit it on the head. It's like because campaigning is different than governing. And in terms of public policy, this is good public policy for the state. And so we'll see where the governor's office comes down.
2: Adam, what's interesting is this comes just a few months before we expect a ruling from the United States Supreme Court on the legality of the deferred action uh, for childhood arrivals. DACA. The court is expected to uh, hand down a decision at the end of their current session on whether DACA has been legal. Remember, we know that it was put in place by the Obama administration. So uh, this comes just months before, Adam. We're going to see what they do about it. Yeah, not only
3: that, but really close to an election, too. And I think most of us could agree that comprehensive immigration reform is something that really needs to be Uh, addressed at the federal level and it needs to become less of a political football but unfortunately I I don't see that changing no matter what the Supreme Court rules and if it could though if it if the Supreme Court ruling could spark some some real reform then that would be a good thing
4: good yeah uh, we need a political solution for this Uh, it's been going back and forth between the courts between whoever is in the presidential you know executive order position uh, what we have right now in 2020 is a decision. Uh, the vast majority of Americans want to see that pathway to citizenship for these young people, for these dreamers. The Democratic Party have candidates that support that. The Republican Party in Georgia and around the country are not putting those positions forward. It
2: is the let me be careful about something. Is is it the do, does the polling show that the majority want a path to citizenship? or a path to some form of legal status, which is a slightly different matter. We'll take either.
4: I mean, right. I think, you know, the, the, the reality is the status quo is just not working. Okay. And, and we cannot rely on the courts to work this out. The politics have to
2: work. All right. Let me move on to another legislative issue. And I'm really glad that we have Senator Jordan here to talk about it. Uh, yesterday, uh, Jen, you had uh, the Capitol uh, was filled with People from the town of Juliet, Georgia. Plant Shearer is down there, the largest coal-fired plant in the state. It's shutting down, and uh, the disposal of coal ash in that community into pits that you and others in the legislature feel are unsafe because they're not lined has led to uh, their concerns that their water's been contaminated. They're looking for solutions. and, And so you're one of the... Uh, uh, sponsors of a Senate version of a bill to deal with this.
0: Yeah. So the deal is that when the coal fire plants were working, um, they would take the ash from that process and they would put it into these ponds. The problem is most of these power plants are on rivers and waterways. And so when you dig down and you start putting this ash in there, which has arsenic and selenium and all this bad stuff, it's actually, it actually hits the water line, the water table. And so you had this stuff kind of leaching into the groundwater. The reason that Juliet has come up is because most of the folks that live in that area actually still get their water from wells. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually drinking um, contaminated water, and people have been getting sick. The issue really, though, is statewide because there are five power plants statewide um, that have coal ash ponds that aren't lined, and Georgia Power does not plan to line um, or what they've said and in fact you know plant mcdonough on the chattahoochee river in my district has three large coal ash ponds that aren't lined right by the chattahoochee river and so maybe we haven't seen the effects in terms of drinking contaminated water because we have county and city water systems but at the end of the day we are all Juliet, and we have all got to work on this problem to make sure these ponds. Get and,
2: lined. and again, the sponsor, the bill would call for uh, for lining uh, those. P- I call them pits, but the ponds. Uh, Adam uh, George Power says that they are disposing of coal ash uh, according to state rules and regulations, but that's exactly what people like Jen Jordan are trying to change.
3: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because we just went through a cycle with the the Public Service Commission in terms of changing the power rates for Georgia power and one of the big expenses was to do with cleaning up the coal ash. And, and then we see things like this. So soon after that, where it looks like, are they doing half measures? What is, what are they really, uh, out to achieve? And are we going to see some real difference making here or are we just going to kind of plug the hole and, and try to get everybody to quiet down and go about our business
2: tomorrow? I'm I, in fact, I want to start with you and then give everybody a chance at this. We've, we've, um, looked at, at a, an administration in Washington that has rolled back many environmental regulations, some of which were put in place by executive action by President Obama. Um, and so it's it's a little bit harder for me to get a sense, given that, that uh, uh, President Trump has been able to do these things, get praise from industry for the way he's acted, and yet the environment main- remains <laughs> – an issue that people across the country in communities across the country continue to care about a great deal, and especially when something like this comes up.
1: Sure, absolute crisis mode where you're talking about water actually getting trucked in like what you're seeing in Juliet. And and one thing I want to throw out there that's important noting is that Georgia also gets um, imported coal ash from other states and even from places like Puerto Rico that, that come through uh, places like Jacksonville uh, and, and are – brought to Georgia because it's so much cheaper to to dispose of it here in Georgia because they they aren't required to use things like liners in in these pits that, that you were mentioning. So not only is it our own coal ash but but stuff that's brought in.
2: Is this a part is this be, be, is this divided completely along partisan lines downtown?
0: You know what's interesting is that these are normally the issues that would be, but we're starting to see kind of a divide. For example, talking um, addressing what Tamar was talking about, out of the Senate yesterday, we passed a bill that was sponsored by Bill Ligan, who represents the coast. Um, And what he said, basically, the bill um, increased the cost of of bringing coal ash into the state. And so the whole point is going forward, at least, let's try to kind of stop all this ash coming in. doesn't really help what we got, but going forward, it may help. But Ligon is a Republican and a clear conservative, but it's one of those things where a lot of Republicans on the coast are seeing the effects of climate change and what's going on. And so you're starting to see these different alliances um, with representatives or senators who, who are being really affected in terms of their constituency. So it's we are starting to see a clear change here.
2: Ted, it's a little bit it, – it, yeah. people in their own communities understand – I mean, y- y- if you're representing a community where it has environmental concerns, you can't afford to be liberal conservative. You've got to work to help your constituents.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think Ian, I'm sorry Go ahead. yeah I would say uh, Juliet is an example of the intersection of the climate change issue and environmental justice and when Absolutely. you look at where uh, landfills coal ash ponds toxic waste jumps superfund sites are located they're in poor communities rural communities communities of color uh, the ones who are the most vulnerable that often don't have that representation so it's great that we' we're, we're seeing this resurgence um, and I think that there is you know, if Juliet was in Smyrna, you know, we'd be having a different conversation. Um, the, the, the folks down there have been ignored for way too long. I was in a meeting f- almost three years ago. Erin uh, Brockovich uh, came down with Green Law and, you know, said Juliet, Georgia is almost as bad as what she dealt with in, you know, California and, and the, the, the famous case there. Um, we are paying for the, the cost of cheap energy. Um, all those years. And we're paying for it in the cleanup, the environmental contamination,
2: and of course, people's lives. So right, we're going to watch Adam, you wanted to jump in, I know.
3: Yeah, I, you mentioned Bill Ligon and, and what's going down on the coast. And I'm, as we're talking, I'm trying to pull up Ligon's uh, district map, but I, I'm pretty sure that part of Ligan's district includes the St. Mary's River. And there's yes. a lot of concern about the coal ash ponds, which I believe are, are basically on that on that ridge that runs just to the east of the Okefenokee Swamp, that there's concerns that stuff that leaches from there gets into the St. Mary's River and runs down to the coast. So, uh, and that obviously with some of the other things that are being proposed for the Okefenokee Swamp in terms of mining and some other things is really kind of ramped up the pressure in that part of the state. In terms of what's being done environmentally and what the impacts could be.
2: So, all right, Jen. Uh, both House and Senate versions of this. Where, where do we? You have a sense of where things stand and what the what the movement might be forward on these bills.
0: So, what's interesting is that Juliet specifically. If we're going to talk about Juliet, mm-hmm. is deep red. I mean, it's it's MAGA territory. So, it's one of those things where um, I think you're going to maybe see some bills that are going to be filed by Republicans. Um, with respect to this issue, because I think they are feeling the heat. Um, And yesterday was incredible in terms of the turnout. And if you listen to The residents from Juliet. The residents from Juliet who came up there to talk to their representatives and their senators. And if you turn your back on those people when they're holding their children and telling you stories about how their children have cancer um, and and multiple children in their family have cancer, um, then you're going to be facing— a real issue, I think, when we come up on the elections. Good.
4: I, you know, I, I'm very pessimistic of it. Uh, this has been going on for years. And, you know, I mentioned Smyrna because of stereogenics. Right, and which the is moment, a big issue for Jim, yeah, Jim. You know, the, 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 the speed at which Republican and Democratic leaders acted to that was amazing. But, but, but and let me be we don't clear, see that same bipartisanship and urgency happening in Juliet.
0: But, but let me be clear. In terms of stereogenics, plant McDonough with the three coal ash ponds is right by Sterigenics. Mm. So we are dealing with that issue. And it's one of those things where I tell folks that you look at Juliet because Juliet is the future for all of our communities.
2: Okay. Um, we will watch how that unfolds. Let me do one more thing before we have to take a break. Uh, it, it, it's Jen, I'm. you should lead the way with, with this conversation if you can. Um, the governor is pushing hard. He has the support of the superintendent <laughs> of schools and of at least one of the major education uh, groups in the state. Uh, S.B. 367, which would reduce the number of mandatory tests in public schools from, I think it's mostly high schools. I think it's from eight tests to four tests. Um, is there much controversy around this measure or does this seem like it could be a no-brainer that everybody's tired of too many tests?
0: It's, it's a little bit of a no-brainer, um, but the reality is the tests that most people have concerns with um, are the ones that are given the elementary levels and they're the ones that are actually required by federal law. Um, At this point, Georgia's pretty much pulled back as much as possible Mm. in terms of this testing. So what this bill does is it hits some testing areas and specifically in high school as well, but it, but it feels more like this. We're doing something for you. When the reality is, what people really want in terms of high stakes testing can't be accomplished at the state level. It's really it, a federal, it's federal issue. It's but, a federal issue. But
2: tomorrow, it. Uh, by the way, Tom Faust uh, reminds me. It's four high school tests that would be cut, and then one uh, test in middle school. Beyond that, so a total of five tests would be cut. It certainly is compatible with the governor's efforts to reach out and win uh, teacher support with his pay raise. Obviously, is the biggest example of this. But the teachers don't like these tests any more than the students themselves. Sure, having to to (laughs) teach
1: to the test. And I grew up in Virginia, and and we had the same thing at the end of every year. And it felt like, yeah, that that, that was all that we were learning. So, yeah, yeah, certainly.
2: All right, let's do this. Um, Let's take a break. Um, When we come back, I'm going to change the uh, uh, tone of the show a little bit. Uh, Doug Collins was in the studio with us late last week. We uh, talked with him uh, for about 15 minutes. Uh, Last week, we played just a little bit of what he had to say. We're going to play a little more of Doug Collins' comments after the break. And uh, then we'll talk a bit about that, uh, that race. And we'll also talk about the changes that are being made right now by Brad Raffensperger in terms of qualifying for the race that he's in with Kelly Leffler. We'll do that We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Adam Van Brimmer is with us from the Savannah Morning News, Savannah News down there in uh, Savannah. Uh, Tamar Hallerman from the AJC in the studio with us. Ted Terry, about to be. out as mayor of— former mayor, Yeah, yeah. I guess former mayor of Clarkston. Senator Jen Jordan is with us as well. Okay, so late last week, uh, Doug Collins, Congressman Doug Collins, came into our studios, and we recorded a conversation with him. He, of course, is challenging Kelly Leffler as part of that huge jungle election in which Democrats and Republicans all will run together in a special election on Election Day— uh, uh, in November, November 3rd. And um, I wanted to play a portion of that uh, right now that deals with how Collins made the decision about what he was going to do, whether he was going to take on Kelly Loeffler, Governor Kemp's choice for this seat, and what he thinks are the are the factors that distinguish him from Loeffler. So let's listen to that. We'll come back to the studio with our panel and keep talking about the Senate race And we're going to get into some presidential politics after that as well. But here's our conversation with Doug Collins.
5: I've passionately defended this president this administration, conservative values for years. I bled for it. Uh, and, and I think that's the big difference in what we're seeing now. Uh, that was something that I did on my own, but yet uh, our current senator, which is she, when she was appointed, it, for her, didn't support this president until she was getting ready to be appointed. In fact, she supported folks like Romney and McCain. For her, it was a political checkbox. For me, it was a conscious check, because I believed in the conservative values this president uh, had. So when you're fighting for that, and when you get into that swampy mess of Washington, it's amazing how they... Ro- Roll in to protect their own no matter what and what's better for the people of Georgia I believe is a candidacy of Doug Collins
2: there are people out there and many of them uh, affiliated with uh, Governor Kemp who believe that uh, your decision to jump into this race is uh, ripping the Georgia Republican Party in two
5: I tell you this it's amazing what they'll say when they're when they're desperate when you make a pick that uh, I believe was the wrong pick for Georgia I believe you know nothing uh, about. She's a fine lady, good business woman. But for this seat at this time at this part of our our his country's history, I believe it was wrong. Yeah. But I believe the governor had the right to make that pick. That was his choice. Now the voters of Georgia get to pick, and the Washington D.C. don't want to have that happen. They'd love to see me out. They've done everything they can to get me out. They took away vendors that I had. They threatened vendors that I had, uh, took them away, saying they wouldn't have any more, even here in Georgia. And that was between those, the Senate committee and the governor. But we're still there. In fact, we've come back stronger. So I think the interesting thing is, is when does an election? tear? Is it the fabric of what a Republican uh, is? When does elections, especially in this state, and especially coming from this governor who just came through a, an amazing race himself, when does a, just letting the people decide become tearing at the fabric of who we are? I think it's more of a case of they don't want uh, this candidate right now to stand before the voters uh, with a, someone who
2: has a strong record, someone who's carried that torch. And I think that's the problem you're seeing right now. So I want to ask you a few questions that I have not heard anyone ask, okay. and and, and I'd, I think people would be interested in knowing. When Governor Kemp was still uh, looking at the candidates who applied for that job well, – by the way, what did you think of that process? That was the more unusual
5: process. I'll put it, it, it that way. It, uh, not, not what we expected. In fact, if you talk to anybody around the country, when they said they opened up a portal, that was just like – They looked at me like, you're kidding, right? And I said, no, we're
2: not kidding. This is the way they're going about it. Did you have extended conversations with the governor during that time uh, to talk about your candidacy and whether he would uh, uh, give you that position? If you consider four minutes or five minutes after he had made a decision, a dialogue, yes.
5: That was it? That's it. We were never contacted. We were never asked. We were never... Um, you know, brought in for an interview, never brought in to, to talk about why we were better. I literally had a conversation with the governor um, the, really the week before uh, she was formally announced and was told that that was who that she would be picking. Um, you know, you can go through all the kind of open processes you want, but undoubtedly this was not an open process because at the end of the day, there was no discussions really with anyone about it. You know, that's the governor's choice. The governor has to defend that. I'll just know what I know, and that was that we talked uh, after the decision was made and for a very
2: short time. Once that happened, mm-hmm. what sort of process did you go through mm-hmm. to make a decision whether you felt you had to challenge this selection? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it came at a time in which I thought was very interesting because I was
5: knee-deep or, or over my, up to my neck in impeachment. And I had made a promise to the people of Georgia and to the nation and to this president that I would uh, see that through as a ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. As it came closer to the time impeachment got over with, we looked back at at several factors. Number one, we looked at the people who was contacting us. We had a lot of folks say, Doug, this is, we would like to see you run. This is, you know, we appreciate the governor. We respect the governor. In fact, let me just say this. There are going to be a lot of people in the next years who are going to vote for Brian Kemp for governor, going to vote for Doug Collins for senator. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, even though the governor disagrees. That's going to be okay. But the interesting point is here is also is when you began to look at the polling data, when you began to look at the, the ideas of who carries the values of Georgia better, we have been ahead and sterile ahead at this point, uh, you know, 20 points plus in Republicans, 10 points in a general election ballot, and we can beat the Democrats.
2: When you were making your decision... Mm-hmm did you talk to President
5: Trump well the president I talk a great deal I'll never discuss the the details of what I talked with the president about but did I call the president after we had made the decision tell him yes I told him and um, and he was he wished me the best and we had talked about the fact that there's no need for him to get into this race and I think it's interesting to me when people say was the president gonna get in my question is is I think he's been committed enough to to what this process of staying out of it that you have a sitting Republican senator that he's that he's staying
2: out of it as well well it's no secret that he at least done two occasions, if not more, said to Governor Kemp, Doug Collins ought to be your choice. I mean, some people think the governor showed a certain amount of courage to buck President Trump on uh, making a different choice. Well, I mean, it depends on what you define you know, courage as. And I could say if, that's, if they believe
5: that's taking a pick from the, someone who had encouraged you to pick someone after he had encouraged and helped you become governor, maybe that is courage. Yeah. But if not, I think it's a pick of, of really a vision of where you see Georgia. And uh, I think one of the things that was said to me you know, by the governor was that we needed to outreach and expand to voters uh, that hadn't been voting for us a la his campaign. It was a worried about his image and stuff. And I understand that. But let's think about this. So you're telling that you need to pick a Republican candidate in Georgia who would appeal to folks who don't like the president, who don't have the same values that the 99% of most Republicans in Georgia have. I think there's a better way to do that. I think there's a better way to actually go to, to voters who, who may be concerned about Republicans or conservatives. Maybe they're independents who just want to see a better vision. And take things like I've done with the First Step Act, with criminal justice reform, which we took to the national level. That's what makes my candidacy different. Because in the last six years, uh, uh, my first six years and in my last two as ranking
2: member, we've passed substantive legislation that changes people's lives. That's uh, part of our interview with uh, Doug Collins running for Senate seat number two. Uh, By the way, the entire interview is uh, posted on our social media platform, so you can go there and uh, listen to all of it. Uh, And I should also point out, we have invited Kelly Loeffler to uh, be on Political Rewind, and so far they haven't uh, accepted our invitation, but certainly we will keep trying, as we will with all the other candidates who are in Senate race number two. We've We've had some of them on, but uh, we're trying to get everybody in here. So a few things just quickly uh, tomorrow. Number one, I was stunned a little bit when uh, Colin said Brian Kemp didn't talk to him about this uh, uh, seat except to tell him it wasn't him.
1: Yeah, exactly. After taking so many months to to kind of make the decision, we had the reality show style application process. So it it was I was very shocked to to hear that. Um, And let me just say, I have a little PTSD listening to that. Uh, (laughs) Doug Collins is the fastest talker in Washington. He's very notorious among reporters as we transcribe his tape. And oh, man, he talks fast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to watch that race unfold. I I just thought you should hear particularly this process by which uh, this all came together. Uh, Ted, to, the other thing I thought was interesting was to hear him say, uh, no, the president has so far not endorsed anyone in the race, but there is a sitting senator, meaning Kelly Leffler, and he certainly hasn't endorsed her at this point.
4: Absolutely. And uh, I, you know, everything, I listened to everything he said, so I did catch it. Um, I, there's two things that are remarkable about what was just said. One, is I think that Collins has a lot of energy, yeah. and if you want to run in a presidential year in a high-stakes election, you got to have energy. You got to have it across the board. Uh, and I don't know if he did this for the NPR listeners, uh, but dropping criminal justice reform as something that he's fighting on, you know, that to me portends a general election strategy. He yeah. thinks he can peel off some maybe. center-left Democrats. I don't know. And
2: ironically, Adam, criminal justice is one of the things a club for growth and other uh, conservative organizations are uh, attacking him for right now, saying he's a liberal. Uh, He worked with Democrats (laughs) to pass the First Step Act, among other things. And he's getting uh, hit by conservative groups for it, Adam. Yeah, that's we're certainly going
3: to see a lot of hair splitting on these kind of things. I I know in, in my mailbox lately, I've been getting a lot of of things from pro-life groups that have pictures of of david Perdue and kelly leffler on them as well and you know the volume of these things are going to to ramp up as as these different special interest groups kind of try to draw the line in in an election that there's no primary so who who are you going to back who do you think best aligns with you and and along those same lines as a as a politician who are you going to try to align yourself with to to appeal votes back
1: this this race is so head spinning in a way because Doug Collins has seemed like the anti-establishment yeah. kind of outsider dude because he doesn't have the help of of some of the um, you know the Washington groups like the the National Republican Senatorial Committee. But you know just last year he he was he he was a member of the GOP leadership. He had this very uh, senior position on the Judiciary Committee, um, and and it's worth noting that that Democrats generally really like him. On the Judiciary Committee, I did a big profile of him last year in the lead up to the um, the uh, Mueller hearings and. He was really well-liked, actually. He, he did a lot. Criminal justice won him a lot of friends on yeah. the other side of the aisle and some other issues he's worked on for newspapers, for cloud computing, patents, that sort of thing. So it's interesting that, that you kind of see that bulldog side come out of it. I,
2: I have to tell you that, that we all know that, that Collins was popular on both sides when he was in the legislature. You saw it on the Hill. I got to tell you, every time that comes up on this show— The uh, liberal listeners of the show are outraged by it because they feel that to say anything about Doug as a nice guy and somebody you can work with is to overlook the very partisan and stark way in which he's represented the President of the United States, which is also a fair point. <laughs>
1: sure, but you see, I mean, that's the the name of the game in Washington. You know, you, you have to have those multiple sides of yourself, and it's something that that he kind of pitched as he was was trying to become the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee. Okay. I can be this attack dog for Trump, but I can also, you know, work on legislation when when you need to, and it's something you see in politics all the all time. All the time.
2: All right, um, let's um, move on if if we can. But but keep it in a related vein. Um, And I'd love to have you weigh in on this, Jen. So Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, has now um, said uh, definitively that qualifying for statewide offices and for legislative all the qualifying for the May primaries will take place next week. March 2nd through March 6th. There was some question as to whether the special Senate election, the November special election that will fill the seat that's now Leffler's for two years beyond November, whether that qualifying would be 60 days before that election or whether Raffensberger had the power to make it simultaneous to next week's qualifying and he's doing it next week. Uh, there are people who think that's a clear effort to help Kelly uh, Leffler because. Uh, 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 The the feeling is that it's going to hold out other people from getting in. What do you think about all this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, to be. Look, I I think there's a question of whether even he can do that. Um, I understand that the the governor issued an executive order last week saying Raffensperger has the power to do this and to set qualifying. And he called the special election. Um, But you will remember and what y'all have talked about previously is that there was an attempt to amend Um, the code section that would have given Raffensperger the express power to do this. And that was HB House Bill 757. And then that got kind of wrapped up in in the back and forth Mm -hmm. as to whether or not there will be a special primary um, and then a special general. And so there are competing provisions Mm -hmm. of the Georgia code that would indicate that for U.S. Senate special elections that Raffensperger may not have the ability to do this. So the question is, you know they went ahead and just kind of pushed through um but clearly it's being done specifically to help leftward
2: yeah i should have been clearer in how i framed that because you sort of did jen um there was an effort in 757 to establish a primary in may for that vote for the senate seats uh party primaries in which certainly um uh, it had that happened would have been a help to Doug Collins. It would have pl- played into in, uh, to the hands of the of the Speaker and others who were supporting. Right, Doug but Collins. the
0: original because that it was amended to do right, that. But the right. original point of it was to give Raffensperger yeah. the power to, to set to qualifying to set early in
2: March. Ted, you were um, you know you for a while dipped into Senate race number one, not number two. But do you think that we're making too much about when Raffensperger sets qualifying? Is it just as Good to have it next week as any other time. No, we should absolutely be talking about this. To me, it is a trend of
4: Republicans trying to change the rules or reinterpret the rules to benefit them. And whether it's voter suppression, whether it's consolidating polling places with the new voting machines and computers, um, the purging and now trying to change you know how the the, the actual elections go about. And so I think the average person out there is wondering why the Republicans have to rig and gain the system so much to try to hold on to power. And I think the answer is because they know that they're at risk of losing that power.
1: One of the outcomes I think is worth noting that, that they're trying to prevent with the Kelly Leffler race is, is potentially one of the Democrats who's running in the uh, Senate Senate seat one primary, perhaps somebody you know doesn't become the nominee there and then you could automatically transition and run in the second race. And right now he has three, uh, Senator Perdue has three pretty well-financed Democratic challengers. Yeah. So somebody could lose narrowly in a, in a primary or a, or a runoff and then immediately turn and, and run again against uh, Senator Loeffler.
2: Well, one of the interesting things about this, and Adam, i give you the last word before we have to take a break, is that Setting the uh, qualifying for next week, in fact, may have a benefit on the Democratic side of race number two, where we now have Matt Lieberman uh, in the race. We think Ed Tarver from Augusta is going to jump in next week. And then, of course, Raphael Warnock, who's consolidating an awful lot of support. Around his candidacy. And, and if you do the qualifying next week, you might slow down the number of other Democrats who might jump in to that special election, which would make things even more problematic for Democrats, right?
3: Yeah, that's the most interesting thing to me, right? Is the fact that uh, there's a lot of concerns about the Democrats and the field becoming so diluted with so many candidates. Obviously, Michael Thurman is still a name that's hanging out there that, that may jump in, and that would give them, what, five candidates if you include the the professor from over in, in Athens on the Democratic side and and then if you throw in a, a Teresa Tomlinson if she loses narrowly or a John Ossoff if he loses narrowly that really you know you could have a really crowded field and where you're basically only looking at the top two vote getters advancing
2: to the advancing to the the runoff yeah right and that Go ahead. That
3: increases the likelihood that you could have two Republicans, right?
2: Yeah. Sorry that I interrupted. Yeah. Uh, by setting qualifying for next week, anybody running in Senate race number one is precluded from being able to come back after the May primary and qualify for Senate race number two.
0: Right. And and so let me be clear with respect to this, I think that there's some questionable legality about doing this.
2: There will be lawsuits, right?
0: Well, I'm unsure because from the perspective of political parties, whether it's Democratic or Republican, it is important for them to control who the field is. And if you have it wide open until August or September, I mean, things get really crazy, like on both sides. And so my guess is that Republican or Democrat in terms of establishment party structure, um, they're probably glad that qualifying is going to happen next week. Yeah. So they know who the candidates are and they kind of know where they're going and and, and they can control the process more. Right, Ted? Uh,
4: absolutely. I would say, though, that when we talk about the establishment, Democrat or Republican, Republican. It is clear that that doesn't actually exist, because if it did, then we would have had consolidation on both sides long ago. And I think this just portends about what, what our politics is looking at. You see at the presidential level with the DNC you know, issues, uh, there is no one group of people controlling the process. This is a very, quote, small d democratic process.
2: All right. got to get to another break. I want to come back. We still have South Carolina looming ahead of us in a few days. Tom Faust just sent me uh, some breaking news on a big endorsement. Uh, In South Carolina, we'll get to that after we take uh, this break for these messages. South Carolinians go to the polls on Saturday in the Democratic presidential preference primary. Uh, The latest polling shows that Joe Biden continues to maintain a very slim lead over Bernie Sanders, much more narrow than uh, we would have expected even a couple of weeks ago, and that black support for Joe Biden has uh, really plummeted. Uh, So we're going to watch that uh, very carefully. Saturday they vote, tonight a big, big debate uh, that we uh, will all be watching, I think, pretty closely. Um, And we have two people in the studio who have both essentially lined up behind candidates in the presidential race. Uh, Ted Terry is a Bernie Sanders supporter. Jen Jordan, I want to say that you've endorsed Mayor Bloomberg, but you've also been very careful in how you've described your support for him. I think it's fair to say. Am I characterizing that correctly?
0: Yeah, I I appreciate his his support in this state. Um, But I'm going to be really interested to see what the debates kind of show in terms of the big stage for him.
2: Yeah. Uh, so for him, as long as we're talking to you first, this test tonight of whether or not he can perform on a debate stage in a way that he really—how did you feel when you, you know, having endorsed him basically, and then watching him in that first debate in uh, Las Vegas uh, this past week? How, how how did you come away from that feeling about him?
0: You know, as a lawyer who who makes their living on presentation. <laughs> <laughs> It was a little lacking. I mean, um, but what's interesting to me is tactically what the other people are doing. I mean, he was kind of the the person everybody went after last time. But really, Sanders, I mean, Sanders is, is the one to beat. I mean, Bloomberg wasn't even on the ballot in in Nevada. And so it's interesting to me is, are they finally going to get that Bernie Sanders is the front runner, right? Or is everybody else finally going to get that and actually turn to him and kind of start going after him? Or are they going to keep kind of going after each other? And then Sanders kind of just runs away with it.
2: You know, Ted, it was startling last week to watch everybody gang up on Bloomberg when Sanders is sitting there as the front runner in all of the polling, he's had a pretty free ride throughout the entire debating season starting from the middle of last year. And now tonight, there's some real fodder that other others can use against him. We're beginning to see the Washington Post has a major piece today on uh, 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 Sanders and statements he's made visiting the Soviet Union, coming away with some praise for what he saw while he was there. Um, but let's play a quick soundbite of him. This was Sanders uh, talking about, uh, first, a Very let, well, let's do this one. Uh, uh, let's go to number three, guys. And this is Sanders talking about Castro in a 60 Minutes interview the other day. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? even though Fidel Castro did it. There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, You want to, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. This is going to stick with him. His comments about the Sandinistas uh, in Nicaragua during the revolution, the Castro stuff talking about the Soviet Union, Uh, Ted, it strikes me that uh, this is stuff he's going to have to deal with. And so are you as a surrogate for him.
4: (laughs) Uh, I think he answered the the criticism exactly correctly. Um, He pointed out, uh, as President Obama did when trying to reopen ties with Cuba, that uh, there are um, opportunities for us to actually work together. And Yes, you can. Can you can separate the the things that are good in other parts of the world? We don't have to be American exceptionalists for everything. We haven't conquered the world on every single issue, and I think you know these issues, these sound bites might come up. They might be an issue for some of the maybe, quote unquote, swing voters. But the key of Sanders' campaign and the key I think you're seeing in his uh, – in Nevada, I think you're going to see in South Carolina and Super Tuesday states, is that the co- the coalition is very broad and it's issue-based. Um, it is about bringing new people into the process. And so those sort of clips, that kind of stuff that you're going to – that's going to fling around Twitter and maybe on cable news. Do not matter to the people who uh, believe in Senator Sanders, who believe that he is trustworthy, that he is going to fight for them, that he can't be bought um, and that he's consistent. He's been consistent on the issues that he stands on for 25, 30 years. And that right there, I think, is that trust. I mean, he's been ranked one of the most popular, and most trusted politicians, Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bernie Sanders. All right. Consistently whose rankings are those you gov. YouGov. Okay. Uh, and and so Schwarzenegger, yeah, uh, yeah, Schwarzenegger's in there, most trusted, right? Uh, but you know, the, the the Knight Foundation just came out with a report, the 100 million voting project, and this is really important because 43 percent of the electorate and potential electorate did not vote. Yeah. 2016. All
2: right. We're going to let you. Uh, thank you. Yep. Um, I, I, and we're going to talk about Sanders and and you'll be welcome to come back. But I, d- I just want to deal with what we expect in this this coming week. Um, Adam, uh, I don't think the comments. It, it, well, let me ask you, uh, does all of this coming to light just a few days before South Carolina, do you think, in your opinion, is going to have an impact on voters there?
3: I do not. I do not. I think that the South Carolina electorate is is pretty well set and you know all the polls seem to indicate that that biden and sanders are up front and biden may be weakening but we'll see with we have a debate tonight right yeah and we'll see if that moves the needle and really until we start to see bloomberg on a ballot which i guess is a a little over a week away we're we're kind of guessing at straws in terms of the the democratic electorate other than the fact that sanders seems to have quite a bit of a momentum at this point
0: so what I'm interested in is that um, Congressman Clyburn is supposed to come out and support tomorrow, Biden. Biden. And I will tell you that, that he is, I mean, he is king in yeah, South Carolina. Exactly. And so it's one of those things I'm really interested in terms of how that's going to move the needle. So if even Biden's kind of looking like he's slipping in South Carolina right now, um, what the impact that's going to have on Saturday.
2: Yeah, we're, we'll wait for that tomorrow morning. So far, all Clyburn has said is that. By, on Wednesday morning, he'll tell us who he's voting for, whether he goes so far as to make the endorsement of Biden, as we expect. Uh, tomorrow, how do you see South Carolina uh, uh, playing out?
1: Well, I think it's critically important to Joe Biden that he he yeah. wins it. This is his firewall, and if he does not come out a winner, then then he is very much in in trouble. And then it's also kind of a last stand for a lot of these other candidates, like Elizabeth Warren, who who had a pretty good debate night last week, and and it didn't seem to really resonate with the voters of Nevada. Um, so you know she's scrambling. Pete Buttigieg is scrambling. He just got a new endorsement from the state, the news state which is one of the
2: most important newspapers in South Carolina. Literally, just a short time ago, endorsed Pete judge
1: Exactly. Could Amy Klobuchar, a lot of them, these are kind of their final moments. So. Right.
2: You get the last word. It's We have about 20 seconds to say thank you to everybody. And that's that's it for us. I wish we had another hour because you've been great. I want to hear more of what you all have to say. Adam Van uh, Brimmer, Ted Terry, Jen Jordan, Tamar Hellerman, thank you so much for being with us. We're back with you tomorrow. And uh, Greg Bluestein's up in Charleston. He's watching the debate up there. He'll join us along with the rest of the panel to talk about that Democratic debate we're all watching for tonight. See you again tomorrow.